Good evening. Let's see quite a gathering of Christadelphians on place again. It's been a few months since we've had a gathering, I believe. Um, I bring with me the love and greetings of the brethren in the Clinton Ecclesia. And those that aren't here, there's quite a few of us, but those that aren't here wish that they could be here. topic of my talk this evening is the scriptural definition of love, and in particular, uh, agape or agape, agape or love. <clears throat> my subject this evening will revolve around love as spoken of in the Bible, and how we are to manifest it when handling problems in the brotherhood. Our love and devotion to God is said to be the greatest of commandments, according to Jesus in Matthew 22, verse 37 and 38. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. That's Matthew 22, 37 and 38. So let us examine what this love is that we are to manifest. There are two root words in Scripture which are rendered love. One is phileo, and another is agapeo. Phileo, in the Greek, is a verb and pertains to emotional feelings of closeness and how those emotions affect a person's actions. It's defined as fondness, affection, friendliness, or closeness to a specific person or thing. Agapeo is a verb also. Agapeo is a root word and carries with it the same meaning as the word agape, a self-sacrificing love, the willingness to give something up in order to please or help someone or something other than himself, especially in regards to spreading the truth and helping others in their walk toward the kingdom. Agapeo can be rendered to an enemy as well as a friend, and it's present even in, in the absence of strong emotion or feeling. In chapter 12 of Romans, it says to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. The command for us then is to sacrifice ourselves willingly to God's purpose. How do we manifest this sacrifice if God is not here and we cannot perform it directly to Him? The first action that comes to my mind is obedience through baptism. Baptism is the beginning of our walk before God, the dedication of our lives to His service. Although our actions should begin to reflect Christ before we are baptized, it isn't until the moment we emerge from the waters that our probation begins. From that point onward, there are many ways that we can manifest agapeo love a couple of which are how we treat our fellow brethren and how we act toward those which are falling into either moral or doctrinal error. Our actions toward our brothers and sisters in Christ are some of the foremost opportunities we have to manifest agapeo according to Scripture. 
Jesus is very specific when He says in John 13, 35, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love, or agape, one to another. It is by our self-sacrificing service to those of like precious faith that all men are able to tell that we are the, the disciples of Christ. This bars any grumbling or murmuring because people around us wouldn't think that we love our brethren at all if we complain and murmur about them or about helping them behind their backs. But, as 2 Corinthians 9-7 tells us, we are to give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth the cheerful giver. Cheerful here means prompt or willing and with a merry attitude. We have volunteered to work in God's vineyard. We are not forced laborers. But if we do not give to our brethren with a cheerful and willing attitude, then God will not look on it as a good work that shows our love for our brethren. But instead, He will view it as eye service. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter five, chapter six. Ephesians chapter six, starting at verse five. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart, as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. We will be men-pleasers, as the Pharisees, which showed an outward affection for God, but had no devotion or desire to serve God, and were described as being full of dead men's bones. Therefore we must remember that Yahweh seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but Yahweh looketh on the heart. 1 Samuel 16.7 Showing love and feeling love for our brothers and sisters are two very different things. We have to feel agapeo love, a desire to sacrifice our will for another's natural or spiritual benefit before our actions or gifts of love will be acceptable to God. This action of giving to our brethren does not mean simply a monetary gift. That would be the easiest way to help at times, but that can also make some situations worse if we aren't careful. Some brethren have a hard time handling money. So by simply fixing the temporary problem by giving them money, we might actually make them less dependent on their own income and thus make their spending problem worse. That's just one example. But there are many other ways that that can uh, make it harder for brethren to fix their own situation and grow from it. We need to be observant and see the needs of our brethren and be willing to help in any way possible. Sometimes that means doing hard things like counseling them and how to effectively use what they've been given in this life. Or listening to their problems and giving them scriptural advice even if they don't want to hear it. But even hard things have to be done with a cheerful spirit. Again, as 2 Corinthians 9-7 says, Every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, 
so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity. The serving of our brethren is a very important part of showing agapeo love. Christ washed the feet of his disciples. Are we unwilling to help in the simplest matters because it might get us dirty or take us away from our television program? No matter how hard it is to perform those works for our brethren, we must remember that God is not unrighteous to forget your work or toil and labor, toil or pains of love which you have showed toward his name and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. Hebrews 6.10 Turn with me to Galatians chapter 6 now. Galatians chapter 6 verses 9 and 10. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Why is it that we should do good, especially unto them who are of the household of faith? Matthew 25.40 gives us the answer. Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. We're supposed to pay special attention to those which are still young spiritually in the truth. The clearest example for this is in Matthew chapter 18, starting at verse 3. Matthew 18, verse 3. Verily, I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And those, and whoso shall receive one of these little children in my name, receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believeth in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Offended here means to trip up or entice to sin. We must all take care for all of our brethren, but those which are still young in the truth, but not necessarily young in age, are some of the easiest to sway one way or another on issues facing the household. We must leave the flock, but be aware of where our lands wander. Who do they spend time with? What influences their decisions? Are they remaining faithful to the Savior? Be aware and guide them toward righteousness, because without our young people, there may not be another generation of mankind with the truth. I can think of multiple ways that a person can be enticed to sin or be tripped up. The most prominent way a person can be tripped up is through doctrinal error, because it is presented so subtly that it isn't caught, or it is presented by people we're close friends with or related to, and we don't want to correct them or withdraw from them since we're close to them in a filial way. Being tripped up by a person preaching any other gospel, as Paul styles it in Galatians, any gospel that leads us away from the first principles of the doctrine of Christ is a grave error that both those that preach the other doctrine and those that believe the other doctrine will have to answer for if the parties involved were baptized believing the truth originally. This is why so many young people are falling away from the truth in this generation, because their friends are falling away. 
and they don't want to break the friendship for the sake of preserving the gospel entrusted to them. So the correction that Agapeo would offer to a person in this situation is left by the wayside, and the fondness and friendship that Phileo offers is chosen as a replacement for Yahweh's love and correction in such matters. But being enticed to sin can come in many different forms. There are well-known sins as stated in Galatians chapter 5, 19-21. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envying, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. It is possible to entice someone toward it is possible to entice somebody toward one of these or other sins without even realizing it. By encouraging gossip or spreading it yourself, you create wrath, strife, and seditions between brethren or ecclesias because of the information that either either isn't true or you don't need to be talking about. And by doing so, you set an example for the young people that it is okay to gossip and be talebearers. The Proverbs term this an abomination to Yahweh. Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs 6, starting verse 16. These six things that Yahweh hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. If what you are saying isn't true, you have a lying tongue, you are a false witness that spreadeth lies. But talking about it to others, by talking about it to others, you have feet that be swift in running to mischief, and you're sowing discord among brethren. This throws a stumbling block in front of the young people, those who are young in the truth, because they look up to the other brothers and sisters in the ecclesia, and those that they respect have more of an influence on what actions or doctrines are acceptable in their eyes. But it also throws a stumbling block in front of other members of the ecclesia, because they either have to stand up and tell a person to stop tailbearing and backstabbing, or they have to keep silent and let the person continue to be an abomination in the eyes of Yahweh. But as Paul states in 1 Corinthians 8.12, But when ye sin so against the brethren, and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. This is no small matter. Which of us feels puffed up enough that we're comfortable sinning against Christ? denying that what we're doing is sin won't take. Even sins of ignorance were still considered sin in God's eyes. Once we're informed we are in sin, then it's not possible for us to claim ignorance as the reason for continuing in. We must be aware of our, of our actions and make sure that we are not a stumbling block to our brethren and sin against Christ. But rather, brethren, seeing you 
ye have seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. That's First Peter one twenty two. The ecclesia today is in dire straits. The ecclesia today is in dire straits because of the influence of the world on its members. Ecclesial events such as Bible schools and gatherings and even Sunday meeting each week are becoming, and some already have become, social events instead of being focused on the truth, the hope we have, and the separation there should be between us and the world. By putting the emphasis mainly on social aspects, we are teaching our young people that socialization with others is more important than standing firmly upon the truth. We are losing many young people and baptized members of varying ages to the world because of their close relationship with friends outside of the truth. And we lose other members to reunion without doctrinal unity, amended doctrines, as well as false doctrines from other churches which are being embraced in the body. Unfortunately, this philosophy of socialization is being spread by some inside the body just as much as it's being spread by those in the world around us. This is filio love working at its strongest. It is full of emotions and wanting everyone to be happy and feel good feel good around each other instead of being first pure, then peaceable, as John 3.17 tells us. This purity sometimes requires that we note that man and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed, yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother, which is 2 Thessalonians 3.14 and 15. Part of being a believer requires that we spend time with each other and speak often one to another. For Yahweh says in Malachi that he hears this and hearkens to it and it pleases him. But this isn't just socialization that we're talking about. What pleases Yahweh is for his children to spend time together strengthening each other by talking about the truth, about the kingdom, and about him. When we visit and all we do is put brethren down or discuss the problems of the ecclesia, or we only talk about what's new, the cares of this life, or the world around us, that does not give glory to God, nor does it please Him for us to leave Him out of our conversations or only talk negatively instead of, instead of discussing the hope and joy of the kingdom. Therefore, it is pertinent that we take seriously how dangerous the social aspects of our ecclesial events become because socializing is very appealing to the young people, though they don't see where their actions will lead them. It is not what pleases our Father in heaven and leads down a broad road to wide gates which contain destruction, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. It is important to note it is important to note that the agapeo we show toward our brethren should go beyond things relating to this vain life. 
Our love for our brothers and sisters should make us desire for them to be in the kingdom, and we should work with them to the best of our ability to help them with their walk in Christ, first and foremost, before any other problem. In some instances, this means correcting those which are straying from the faith, either in their doctrine or conduct. It is important for us to realize that each one of us is a watchman for the body of Christ. If we know a brother is sinning, or has changed the first principles of truth, and he doesn't realize it, or he doesn't believe that what he is doing is wrong, it is our duty, it is our duty as brethren of Christ to show where the problem lies in light of the scriptures. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 2 through 6. Son of man, speak to the children of thy people and say unto them, When I bring the sword upon the land, if the people of that land take a man of their coasts and set him for their watchman, if when he seeth the sword come upon the land, he blow the trumpet and warn the people, then whosoever heareth the sound of the trumpet and taketh not warning, If the sword come and take him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and took not warning. His blood shall be upon him. But he that taketh warning shall deliver his soul. But if the watchmen see the sword come and blow not the trumpet, and the people be not warned, if the sword come and take any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. And verses 8 and 9. When I say unto the wicked, O wicked man, thou shalt surely die. If thou dost not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Nevertheless, if thou warn the wicked of his way to turn from it, if he do not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. It is our agapeo, or our love, for the brother that makes us warn him. It is a self-sacrificing action we are performing, trying to save him from being rejected at the judgment seat. If we try to correct him, there is a chance he will repent and be restored to oneness with Yahweh. But if we don't correct him, he will continue in his sin, and both of us will have to answer for it at the judgment seat. I say it is a self-sacrificing action because, though we are doing what Yahweh commands, sadly, most brethren do not see it that way, and they turn again and rend you. That doesn't mean we get to stop caring or trying to bring the brother or sister back into the way of righteousness. We have warned the brother and made him aware of his situation. From that point forward, we must pray for him because effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. James 5.16 says we must take every opportunity to bring him back into the fold. But what happens if he doesn't change? What if he continues in sin or continues teaching false doctrine? Does that mean it's no longer your problem to deal with? Should we look the other way and not mention the problem so that we can remain friends with the person? First, we must say that not all things work out the way we would like. 
God has prescribed a certain way to handle problems. By ignoring His way, we make matters worse. And we will have to answer before Christ for why we did not follow Yahweh's prescribed way of handling situations, even if they involve withdrawing from individuals. Now, what do we do when a brother or sister persistently teaches false doctrine or walks in sin? The answer most people give is go to Matthew, go to them as Matthew 18 says. Let's read Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. Matthew 18, verse 15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, and go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone, if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more witnesses, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he, if he will neglect to hear them, tell it unto the ecclesia. But if he neglect to hear the ecclesia, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. What part of these verses tells us when this situation is to be used? The very first section of verse 15. If thy brother shall trespass for sin against thee. When a brother or sister is walking in sin or teaching false doctrine, is he trespassing against me or against you? No. He's trespassing against God. Are we then required to go to them three different times with more people each time in order to convince them? No. Brothers and sisters in Christ are expected to know the difference between right and wrong. Ignorance is not an excuse once a person has been enlightened. Ignorance is not an excuse once a person has been enlightened because it is the honor of kings and our duty to search out a matter, especially in regards to God's Word. As a side note here, a person is defined as enlightened when he believes the gospel and is baptized and thus becomes amenable to God. In 1 Corinthians 5, when Paul was writing about the case of adultery in the Ecclesia, he didn't tell the Ecclesia to go and warn this brother that what he was doing is wrong. Paul told them to deliver section 1 unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's verse 5 of uh, 1 Corinthians 5. The man knew he was in the wrong. All that was left to do was remove him from their presence until he had repented. Of course, we know that ample warnings need to be given before a member of the body is cut off, but we can't hesitate too long for a little leaven leaven at the whole lump. And it is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell. I'm going to read from the Ecclesial Guide, a short, short paragraph, chapter 20, or page 22, under the heading, Cases of Sin and Withdrawal. Withdrawal is a serious step and ought not to be taken lightly against any brother. It erects a barrier and inflicts a stain not easily removed. It ought never to be taken until all the resources of the scriptural rule of procedure have been exhausted. 
After withdrawing from the adulterer, the Corinthians were to maintain their position. For Paul continues and says, I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner. With such an one, no, not to eat. That's verse 11 of chapter 5. Remain separate from them. Why? For the destruction of the flesh. This separation does not apply just to breaking bread, nor does it apply to just within the ecclesia. If part of the ecclesia continues in fellowship with such an one through friendships outside of the ecclesia, the person in the wrong will feel as though he is still in good standing with some in the ecclesia, and thus it takes longer before he realizes how far he has strayed from Yahweh, because the brethren treat him as if he is as if nothing is wrong, give him a false sense of righteousness. It will also build a support group for the one in error, error and suddenly begin to divide the ecclesia, and if it continues, the household. That is why we are commanded in Ephesians 5.11 to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. few more examples of fellowship parameters uh, that we could read are Titus 3, 10 and 11, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 17, 1 John 1, 6 and 7, 2 John 1, 9 through 11. But for lack of time, I'm only going to read a couple of these. We're going to turn to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verse 10. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. And first John, second John, sorry about that, second John. Second John. 1 verses 10 and 11 If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine the doctrine of Christ perceive him not into your house neither bid him God's speed for he that biddeth him God's speed is partaker of his evil deeds My point isn't to make known tell you, tell myself everything that requires a person to withdraw from someone else or an ecclesia to withdraw from somebody. My point is to make it clear that true agapeo means doing what is best for our brethren's spiritual health. Just because it hurts doesn't mean it isn't love. Filial love is the friendship and fondness kind of love. It is based on emotions and doesn't care about the truth or the eternal salvation we are attempting to be found worthy of. It just wants everyone to be happy and feel good. Phileo only. If you don't, with phileo only, if you don't talk about problems, there are none. But we are the children of God, and God's love is agapeo, not phileo. As we can see in 1 John 4, verse 8, where we are told, God is love, or agape. 
which is the Greek word used here. Sometimes agapeo requires us to make the hardest decisions in life, such as Mark talks about in Mark chapter 10. Mark 10, 10, verse 29. 29 and 30. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake and the gospel's. But he shall receive an hundredfold now and this time, houses, and brethren, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions and in the world to come, eternal life. According to this passage, we cannot allow anything, not even our parents or husband or wife, stop us from leaving everything for the gospel's sake, if that is what's required of us. Those who would stand between us and our walk to the kingdom must either be, must be either instructed in the right way or removed from our way if they won't listen to instruction. By allowing a person we are in fellowship with to continue to teach false doctrine or walk in sin, even if it's a person we're very fond of, we are showing by our actions that we condone and embrace what they are doing. For he that biddeth him Godspeed, happiness, or fare thee well, as they used to say, is partaker with him of his evil deeds. Removing ourselves from false doctrine or a person walking in sin is for the good of the individual first and foremost, and by extension the ecclesia overall. For as we said before, a little leaven leaveneth the whole one. We have come most of the way through our study now. We have covered what agapeo is, how it is manifested toward, toward our brethren, and how this love should affect our behavior toward our brethren, which are in sin. In order to leave on a positive, uplifting, exhortative note, though, I must give the scriptural way of bringing a brother or sister that has been disfellowshipped back into the fold, because that is the true meaning of agapeo, self-sacrificing love for the benefit of an individual or ecclesia's spiritual health. reading from the Ecclesial Guide again, page 23. Withdrawal, too, when it comes, it must be noted, is not expulsion. It is the apostolic form of separation which, though practically equivalent to expulsion, in its effects on the separated, is is more in harmony with the Spirit enjoined by Christ upon His house than the form in vogue among professing bodies of all sorts. Withdrawal means that those withdrawing do modestly and sorrowfully step aside from the offender for fear of implication in his offense. Expulsion means thrusting out, which is a different thing and implies and generates the arrogant attitude of ecclesiastical excommunication. The careful preservation of right forms in these things is a help to the preservation of the right spirit. Galatians 6, verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one, 
and a spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. When disfellowshipping a person or withdrawing from them, we cannot be hateful or cruel to them, knowing that we are all flesh and we could fall into the same problem that that person is having. It needs to be done in a manner that lets the person know they are welcome to come back when they have repented from their behavior or teachings. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Second Timothy 2, verses 24 through 26. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. Galatians 6 and 2 Timothy 2 are two passages of Scripture that mention meekness as an attribute needed when dealing with a person straying from the truth. Most people define meekness as being teachable, but in using this definition, we may lose part of its meaning. The true meaning for meekness is gentleness or humbleness. I have always heard it defined as strength under control, or as Webster's defines it, forbearance under provocation. In most cases, when a person is told he isn't in fellowship anymore, he doesn't take it too well. The brothers involved have to be understanding when withdrawing from a brother or sister and not let themselves lash out or be provoked. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. If the brother or sister in error changes and desires to come back, it should be with great joy that they are welcomed back, just as the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner that repents, repents, which is Luke 15, verse 10. True repentance will be recognizable in the actions of the brother or sister that is strayed. When this is seen, we should meet him with joy as he comes back, and we should forgive him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up in overmuch sorrow. Second Corinthians 2. And 1 through 8 could be read. It's a very good passage there, but we don't have time. And when we forgive, we should forget as God does, and not bring up the past. Psalm 103, verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Other passages that could be read are Ezekiel 18, 20-23, Ezekiel 33, 12-16, Jeremiah 31, 34, James 5, 19-20. And... Check real quick. One of these I want to read. Okay, Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 12 through 16. Ezekiel 33, verse 12. Wherefore, thou son of man, say unto the children of thy people, the righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him in the day of his transgression. As for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall thereby in the day that he turneth from his wickedness. 
neither shall the righteous be able to live for his righteousness in the day that he sinneth. When I shall say to the righteous that he shall surely live, if he trust in his own righteousness and commit iniquity, all his righteousness shall not be remembered. But for his iniquity that he hath committed, he shall die for it. Again, when I say unto the wicked, Thou shalt surely die, if he turn from his sin, do that which is lawful and right. If the wicked restore the pledge, give again that that he hath robbed. Walk in the statutes of life, without committing iniquity. He shall surely live, he shall not die. None of his sins that he hath committed shall be mentioned unto him. He hath done that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live. Yahweh has great agapeo for the world and gave His only begotten Son while we were yet sinners. It can be found in John 3.16 and Romans 5.8. His desire is that all men everywhere repent and learn His truth. Acts 17.30 He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked as we just read, but wishes to be reconciled to those that truly long to please Him. We are to put off the old man, put on Christ, and manifest God's characteristics. Therefore, we should fervently desire our brethren to be reconciled to us and to God as soon as possible. Once our brother has visibly repented from his sinful works, all his transgressions that he hath committed, they shall not be mentioned unto him. As Ezekiel 18.22 says, neither by us nor by Christ at the judgment seat. Finally, brethren, let us examine ourselves whether we be in the faith. And let us be watchmen for our brethren and the household as a whole. If we don't stand up for the truth, we will lose it. Our Master's return is imminent, and now isn't the time to put our blinders on and act like we don't notice the state of the ecclesia. The prophecy has been made in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-3 through 3, regarding the state of the Ecclesia in the days preceding the return of Christ. And we know we have come to that day. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering, gathering together unto Him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. We are in that day of falling away. Behold, I come quickly, saith Christ, Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments. Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus.